Much like the teaching in the church on the Lord's Day, uh, I can see a change um, in my lifetime that in some ways is remarkable. Um, When I was younger, now some of you hold on to your seats, it was in the previous century, and it was several decades backwards into the previous century. Um, I remember the the 60s. Um, Now my wife's memory doesn't kick in until the mid-90s. She's younger than, no she's not, she's five weeks older than me, but we have different connections for memories. And uh, she and her brother sit at family gatherings and everybody's talking about something that happened when they were little and Jan and Rick look at each other and say, did that really happen or are they pulling our legs? Uh, Because both of them can't remember their childhood very much. But I can remember some vivid things from my childhood, but I remember both with regard to the Lord's Day and with regard to the practice of head coverings that you could say the vestiges of the church's previous practice still remained, but the teaching that lay underneath those practices had been lost. Um, As dispensationalism in the 20th century overtook the American evangelical church, uh, the doctrine of the Lord's Day being a Christian Sabbath uh, was abandoned. But the churches and the people in the churches still, by and large, observed the Lord's Day uh, and practiced what their Previous generations had practiced, but as is always the case, when there's no doctrinal foundation, there's no real reason to do something, then the flesh takes over and the practice becomes lost. And so we've come to a time where the Lord's Day in most what I call broad-spectrum evangelical circles in the church, um, it was lost in theory, if you will, in my youth, but not in practice. Now it's lost in practice. And I think the same thing is true with regard to head coverings. Uh, It was waning a little earlier than the Lord's Day in many circles, but I can remember back in the 60s, many women still wearing hats at church. Um, But it's passed again from theory and now into practice. Um, When Jan and I were at Bob Jones... This is going to seem like the dark ages to a lot of people, but we were there from 1980 to 1984, two more years for me and then seminary after. But in those years uh, at the university, they used to have a Sunday morning worship service on campus. Um, So everybody went, the faculty that lived on campus and all the students. And it wasn't required during the week for chapels and other things, but the Sunday morning worship service, there was a rule. And, of course, everybody knows that Bob Jones' rule book is massively thick. But there was a rule that you had to wear, the ladies had to wear a hat on Sunday mornings. And so they were reflecting what the majority of their constituent churches had practiced, really, for generations. But BJ being what it is, was, whatever, um, it was a little slower uh, to surrender the practice than the churches that sent students there was, were. So they still practiced that for Sunday morning worship, and uh, it was left off, Jan, when do you think that was? Late 80s? 
by the time our girls were students um, in the late 90s, it had been really long abandoned. So when you come to the practice of head coverings, and I know our church is looked at as strange. We are not the only people that practice head coverings. Uh, I don't know if Derek's talked on or touched on any of that, but there are other groups. I know that Joel Beakey, the Let's see if I can get this right. I always cross the two names. It's RHB, which is Reformation Heritage Books. That's the publishing arm of their seminary and whatnot up there. Um, HRC, Heritage Reformed Congregations, is the name of the denomination. Uh, They practice head coverings. Um, I don't know if there are any variations on how they do that than our denomination does. Uh, but they they teach and practice head coverings uh, much the same as we do. There are other churches that uh, practice head coverings. It's not a requirement for membership per se. Um, I know there's a Baptist church in Greenville that does that with regard to, say, women that sing in the choir, uh, play the piano, missionaries giving a testimony, those type of upfront things. Uh, They would be required to wear a head covering whereas they don't make it a rule for all their members. Uh, And there are other churches that have variations like that. And, of course, you've got the Mennonite groups, uh, Amish, that they wear head coverings not only at church, they wear them all the time. Um, So those are some less common uh, and certainly wasn't the universal practice of the church as the Mennonites did. But all that to say, um, it's a practice that... It's not a new, weird invention of some cults that are trying to form. Uh, It's churches that are holding on to a practice that was nearly universal uh, in the church across denominational lines uh, for for a long, 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 long time. Um, So anyway, um, there's that. Uh, As I said, I just want to give some experience. So that's a little bit of my experience. I've lived through... um, the last days of that being widely practiced among churches to days where it's now something weird uh, that people look at and say, what's going on here? Uh, We better check these people out Um, because that's strange. Well, I can appreciate uh, a little bit of that spirit. We need to test the spirits and we don't want to be drawn away with every wind of doctrine and follow every cult that comes along. Uh, but it isn't a new and weird thing. Um, one of the things, and again, I've just jotted down some of my observations. Um, hmm. I'm getting out of my sequence that I had written them in. Not that there was any necessary wisdom in the sequence. Um, I've already gotten almost to the door of this one, so I will do, deal with this one. One of the things that's obvious about head coverings is they're visible. And that in itself can present a problem because if you do look at the whole issue of Phariseeism or legalism, um, extra biblical stuff, that's how it's phrased a lot of times today, there's nothing that a Pharisee likes more than something that's visible. Um, you know, the, Christ said they like to pray in the street corners. And 
pray long prayers that they might be seen of men. They don't go in their closet and really deal with the Lord. They, they want to be known as prayerful people. Well, so you could look at a head covering and it, it would fit quite nicely into that category of, wow, here's something I can do and people can see and, you know, there goes me up in their estimation. But is the prospect or the danger of the misuse of something a sufficient reason for us to abandon something that God's commanded. I mean, you can misuse anything. You can look at the Lord's Day in a legalistic framework. You can look at any practice in a legalistic framework. I'm going to, I'll just give you a heads up. I'll announce it this morning if I don't forget in the announcements, but I actually plan to start a series on Sunday nights uh, here to open the year on the Lord's Day. Um, I was rifling through books that are still needing to be organized in my library from the move and uh, found a a little volume I read years ago on the Lord's Day by a man named Daniel Wilson. Uh, He was one of the founders of a group or ministry called the Lord's Day Observance Society back in the 1800s. It was a series of seven sermons, uh, and I really want to... I'm not going to preach his sermons, but kind of base the opening messages of the year on Sunday nights on that sequence of perspective that he shared. And he preached those in 1827, so coming up on 200 years ago. Um, How did I get there? (laughs) I was going somewhere with that. Right. Yeah. That was there, but there's something in between there and here that I was supposed to be getting at. Um, Right, well, maybe it'll come back, maybe it won't. Um, It's gone, that one, that, that, uh, I'm going to say that thought somewhere on northern Maine. I watched the map when I was flying back over. We went way over north, over Greenland. And then I was almost west of the northern, we were west of the northern tip of Maine when we entered the U.S. I thought about waving at John Kelly down there. I think we went over his house. But uh, he probably wouldn't have seen me with the window rolled down at 37,000 feet. And it was 81 degrees below zero on the other side of the window. That's, uh, that's cold. Um, right, well, that thought's not going to come back. I've given it all the time I can. Um, but the visible aspect of head coverings, um, I think I was somewhere in the territory of not letting the abuse of something, I found it, I got the thought, not letting the abuse of something uh, keep us back from pursuing it in the right way. Um, the Lord's Day is something people look at as legalistic. How many of you ladies think that you should criticize your husband for being a legalist if he observes the commandment forbidding adultery? How many of you think that you should get in his face for being a legalist 
because he actually does what that commandment says he's supposed to do. Anybody going to vote for that? How many think that he's right to do what that commandment says he's supposed to do? (laughs) Okay, so obeying a commandment doesn't make us legalist. It's how we make use of the law. It's what we think we're accomplishing with observing those commandments. Well, the head covering isn't one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, It's not engraved in stone and in the Ark of the Covenant, separated even from the other aspects of the Mosaic laws. But it is a teaching, an admonition we find in Scripture. So just because someone can abuse it, can make wrong use of it, doesn't mean that we're released from our obligation to make the right use of what the Lord's commanded. And I think it's important for us to have that view of all of the Lord's commands and all of the Lord's word. So the dangers uh, of a visible thing can be present, but it doesn't remove the obligations. And it behooves us then to act with humility in all of our observance. When people come, and I've done new members classes on this topic, whether in a class or just talking with people, I try and tell people, you know, we don't have an usher at the door uh, with a stack of hats, just putting hats on all the ladies that come through that don't have one on. And it's not something we want to beat somebody up about the first Sunday they come or the second or third or fourth Sunday they come. Um, There are other things perhaps that uh, people might want to glean about us along the way and just deal with that along the way as the need or the question arises. Um, So, again, a right way to view and handle it. Um, So, a couple other parts of my experience. Um, Again, these are just some things I jotted down. During my, not youth youth, but teen years when I started paying more attention, if this passage ever came up, preachers and teachers did have to deal with it. Uh, how many people have heard uh, that the head covering in 1 Corinthians 11 is a woman's hair? So we got a handful there. Um, do you ever look at the passage? Again, I might be getting into the passage itself and stealing Derek's thunder. But whatever the passage is talking about that women are supposed to have and to use, men are forbidden to have that. Now, I'm working on compliance. Um, Sorry, i got to pause here. I've been away from you all for three weeks, so forgive me. I was at the table getting water during a break at the minister's week of prayer, and Graham Middleton, I can't remember if Graham was ever here in the church, but he was in North America for several years uh, ministering in Canada. And... uh, got my glass of water and went back to sit down and all of a sudden Graham comes running up to me and grabs him, shakes my hand, said, Reggie, it's so good to see you. I didn't recognize you. And I did not ask him to elaborate. (laughs) I'm just going to attribute it to the glasses. Um, They didn't have those when he was here, but there may have been a few other changes too. Um, Now, how did I get there? Um, Yeah, I was going somewhere with that one too. 
Here, there we go. Well, yes, um, yeah, that was it. That was where I was going. Whatever the woman is to have in the passage, the men are forbidden to have. So if you're going to go there, the way a lot of the modern teachers have done, then guys, get the razor out because it's time. You know, I'm going to do that soon. I told Jan, lose six more hairs. That's getting buzzed and the beard's coming back. So she's praying hard that those last six hairs hang on. Um, but anyway, um, <clears throat> the passage obviously teaches that. So if it's not hair, if it is something that is a tangible sign on the head, then, well, how do we get out from under that if we can't go the hair route? Well, some of the teaching that I've heard is that it was to distinguish women in a particular context. Uh, the Corinthians were in a context where in paganism and in pagan worship, often there were prostitutes and priestesses that surrounded the, the pagan temples. And that they would have not been covered, they would have been greatly uncovered, and this was to distinguish them from those thousand temple priestesses. Um, <clears throat> one of my teachers in Wales said that he researched that all the way back, and there was one source about the thousand prostitutes at the temples that um, was repeated for centuries, but there, the, question, the source itself had some serious questions about the accuracy of its statement, but about any modern commentary you pick up is going to make reference to it. I thought that was interesting. But if you look, and again, this is steal, stealing Derek's thunder, none of the arguments in this passage are local or Corinthian. Paul builds a case going through there. It's built first on headship. And headship is, doesn't change. It's, it's how we're created. His second argument actually deals with creation. The created order. Um, and the roles of men and women. And the headship that flows out of that created order. Now he's careful along the way to cut off any thoughts of superiority. Um, he talks about the man deriving his very existence from the woman along the way in our progressive lives here. But the role and function that we see in the home and in the church and in other areas of life. So he argues from headship, he argues from creation, and then he says, doth not even nature itself teach you? He argues from nature. So when Derek goes through these verses and the arguments, which of those three things is local? And which of them is limited to the Corinthian context? Headship? No. Creation? No. Uh, nature? No. None of those arguments are local and Corinthian. And beyond that, at the close of the passage, Paul said... Uh, we don't have this practice, neither the churches of Christ. The practice meaning women worshiping uncovered. He says, no, this is the universal practice through the churches. So again, the context itself takes it outside of Corinth. It takes it into the context of all the churches. So those arguments that are have been presented by modern evangelicals to try and take the passage teaching away really fall short. Uh, they don't do justice to the passage. They don't do justice to history. Um, I actually met 
a pastor one time um, at an event and having a conversation with him. I know him well. I love him. Good respect for him. But he told me he was preaching through 1 Corinthians. I might have been a little younger and sassier at the time. But I asked him, I said, oh, what do you think about chapter 11? He said, yeah, I'm just, I've already studied through there. I'm going to be preaching on it soon. Really? I said, what do you think about the head covering passage? Of course, he knew who I was and where I was. He said, well, yeah, that's what it says. I said, wow, how do you think your people are going to respond to that? He said, well, I'm not going to preach on it. I took a couple of deep breaths and said, oh. And he said, yeah, there's been several issues since I've become pastor that have been difficult and changes we've had to make, and I just think it would be too radical uh, for me to, to handle that. And I just kind of kindly let it go, but that really sobered me. I mean, here's a minister who says, I've looked at the passage, and yeah, that's what it says. But I'm not going to teach on it. You know, the prevailing customs are too powerful. Uh, I don't want to stir the waters up too much in my church. Well, I mean, there's wisdom and there's necessity at times for us not to stir up waters unnecessarily. But to ignore something in the Scripture, particularly when you're, I mean, it's one thing to ignore 1 Corinthians 11 when you're preaching through Joshua. But when you're preaching through 1 Corinthians, to ignore it is, is another thing. And, and that just was sober to me. And, but I think in, in some ways, even that attitude can be a testimony to the need we have of handling Scripture and handling each other, handling people with humility. Um, you can handle something like this um, with a flamethrower, and you can handle something like this lovingly, and yet in a principled way, uh, where you're not giving an opportunity for the flesh and for self-righteousness and for legalism, but just a humble seeking to walk in obedience to Scripture and to do so as inoffensively as possible. Now, we can never eliminate offense as Christians. Paul talks about the offense of the cross. I mean, that's the ultimate offense to the self-righteous heart, the cross of Christ, our inability to do anything to save ourselves. That's offensive. That's humbling. That lays us in the dust, in our depravity. But that's where we are. So we can't ever eliminate offense from the gospel or from the pursuit of obeying the scriptures. But we need to always let that offense be the gospel. Let that offense be the scriptures themselves and not our misuse or our use in the wrong spirit of what we find in the scriptures. And I think, again, with something that's such a visible thing and something people often want to find to object to, I do think, I'm talking about some of my reminiscing in history here, both in our days in Greenville and our days here as well, I found it to be not uncommon 
uh, if people bring up head coverings, maybe visitors that are looking and trying to find a new church and whatnot, that there may be other things that they're not interested in that we have um, that don't come up as one of the reasons that they choose not to stay with us or choose not to be in membership or whatever. Um, <clears throat> it's rare at times for people to actually tell you straight up what their real reasons are, things that kind of kind of get made to look a little different than the reality. So anyway, but how do we practice it? <clears throat> um, I had a couple notes there. I think I'm going to skip over. Um, <clears throat> let me give you one objection and one uh, thing that happened in the very, very, very early years here. Uh, when we started the church, most of the people that began attending had come from dispensational Baptist church backgrounds. And I was forever getting asked, how does the Free Presbyterian Church differ from where I'm from? Well, that's where I was from, so I knew where they were coming from, and I knew the weight of a lot of those questions. Calvinism was one of the, you know, the big things there. Presbyterianism, church government versus Baptist government, that's kind of obvious. Used to be Baptist, now Presbyterian. Uh, but one of those topics um, became the head covering. And so I did a series of lessons on that. There was a couple that were coming at the time... <clears throat> One of these is with the Lord now. Uh, they were only with us for a very brief time at the very beginning. But I remember she made a comment to me about the head coverings that I thought was interesting. Uh, she said that she had had experiences where women were coming to church and it was like a fashion show. Um, the, I mean, you ladies ever shop for hats? You men ever gone into cardiac arrest when your wife came home and told you what she spent on a hat? <laughs> That's when you used to could find them, I guess, at Belks or wherever. You know, you could buy a three-piece suit and a pair of shoes and a steak dinner for what that hat cost. But anyway, um, but she said that she had seen ladies that it was a fashion statement and a fashion show, uh, the kind of hats they were bringing out to go to church. I kind of smiled and said, yeah, I sat behind that lady one time. I couldn't see the preacher at all. Um, and I said, I can appreciate that if you feel like you know, somebody is taking this in a little bit of a different direction than Paul is teaching about in 1 Corinthians 11, about submission and reverence and the house of God and those type of things, when it becomes all about me and all about fashion. But I said to her, I said, well, you know, I haven't ever had this objection before, but let me just, I guess, look at it this way. If the church is going to address that uh, abuse, if you will, the only answer would be for us to dictate then what kind of head covering everybody wears, and they all wear the same one. And I think that that perspective, a legislation on what the hat has to be, uh, is going to be perhaps even more dangerous on a corporate level than the lady here or there that turns it into a fashion show um, on a personal level. So I thought that was an interesting objection, but I don't think the answer uh, is going to be helpful in that regard. I do know that I think, I don't know if a church that's ever done it, but I think when it comes to camp, 
you girls that have been at camp, do they have some rules about camp head coverings? Like they have to be, you know, sometimes we want to get as small as possible. My head's covered. I have a, there's a, there's a flake from my biscuit this morning. It's laying up there somewhere. And no, no, it needs to actually be something we can see. Um, so I guess they have made some statements at camp like that, and that's probably in response to the microscopically invisible head coverings that were coming up. So, yeah, maybe maybe the church has addressed the sombrero um, mentality on one level, but um, I guess you can understand a little bit of what might be behind that. Um, Right, well, I'm seeing our time is gone. Good, I've rambled long enough to tell Derek I actually did Sunday school for him. Um, I'm tempted to take questions, but I think I'm going to pass on that because it is getting a little bit toward time to break. But let me just say this. Uh, Derek's just getting started. I mean, just going through the passage, uh, I think, should be helpful. But if you ever do have questions, don't hesitate. I mean, ask them in Sunday school. You can approach us as a session. You can approach me as a pastor anytime. Uh, we certainly want to be available uh, to deal with it. Uh, I know it's a topic that is sadly unusual in our context, but again, we don't want to take the mindset, well, if the church has abandoned it in mass, then we'll just go along with that, even though we got something in Scripture that's staring us in the face. We want to have a fear of God instead of a fear of man. So, as uh, one of my girls would say, there's that. Um, So, anyway. Well, I appreciate your patience through the substitute today, and uh, hopefully I haven't muddied the waters and just talked a little bit about some of our experience over the years. But I trust Derek will be helpful going along into the passage itself, and... um, Whoever asked the question, what other questions have you put out there? What topics are you heading toward? These were submitted in private? Oh, in secret. Okay. So you don't have to own up to it. Yeah, well, sometimes in Presbytery we make men own up to their vote. You know, a lot of times it's all in favor, say aye, aye, all in favor. Nobody says anything. You get down to the serious stuff. All right, put the hands up. We've got to count. All right, well, let's pray together, and we'll uh, set a wonderful example for Sunday school letting out on time. Lord, we come grateful for the faithfulness and mercy, that unmerited favor that you show us each day. And we ask, even on such a topic as this, Lord, we've handled it with a light spirit today. Lord, we would not seek to handle it with heavy hand and legal heart. But also we want to take your word seriously. We do want to be ruled by the fear of God and not a fear of man. And we pray that you would help us even in our compliance with your law to do so with a right heart and not a legal heart ever. So give help, give grace even working through these and many such things in all of our hearts. And we ask these things with thanksgiving, in Jesus' name, amen.